But first, a word from our sponsor. And now, on with the show. The Uncanny is in reality nothing new or alien, but something which is familiar and of old established in the mind, and which has become alienated from it only through the process of oppression. There are many prejudices and injustices in the world that could leave a bad taste in the mouth. Action or inaction can really define what a person does when pressured into making a choice, or finding help in the unlikeliest places. When a person wishes for their identity to be known, for their voice to be heard, for a sliver of understanding, it can be frustrating to realise the people who were on your side no longer have your back. There are two sides to everything, and Vigus van der Merwe had to find that out the hard way. This is two takes, and this is one shot, an analysis of the film District 9. Be warned, spoilers might be ahead. It has come to my understanding, and whilst researching this film, that various things are quite well known, so I shall only touch on the segregationist and xenophobic aspects of the film of what the film emphasises. The setting of District 9 was inspired by historical events during the apartheid era. Apartheid means apartness in the language of the Africans. It was a system of legislation that upheld the action of state setting someone or something apart from others, commonly known as segregation. Within this time period, estimated from 1948 to the early 1990s, it was these policies that put in place against non-white citizens in South Africa after the National Party gained power. The name District 9 was inspired by the events that happened in Cape Town's District 6. This in turn made the film to become a personal project for the director, Neil Blomkamp, because of his origins in South Africa within that era. However, this can go further. As Greg Broadmoor, the designer of District 9 says, it's not just whites and blacks, you have coloreds, you have Nigerians and Zimbabweans coming in as refugees. You have tribal factions within that. It's massively broken up and stratified. It's an incredibly tense environment. So then to add aliens is almost like another layer, and they happen to go right at the bottom. And so, following on from historical inspiration, District 9 also touches upon the xenophobia of the situation, of the fear and hatred of that which is perceived to be foreign or strange. Therefore, as well as prejudice of people from other countries, District 9 goes further with their alien inclusion by these themes of xenophobia and racism forming the threat of speciesism. The discrimination in favour of one species, usually the human, over the other, especially in the exploitation or mistreatment of animals by them. The aliens are presented under the term of speciesism because of the chosen name by the humans, which is prawn. The word prawn is in reference to the Parktown prawn, a king cricket species considered a pest in South Africa. For the purpose of the story, it sounds rather fitting, don't you think? What were the humans throughout the story, especially those being interviewed, find them a pest? The look of the aliens, or prawns, was just that. They were to have a crustacean hybrid exoskeleton with crab-like shells. They are shown to be several feet taller than any human, with dark, thick, shell-like skin with a mass of facial tendrils. This was chosen for the initial reaction of disgust from the viewers, but as the story progresses, the audience was meant to sympathise with them, because of their bipedal nature and forms of intelligence. 
They showed human-like emotions and characteristics, which will then encourage his feelings. It is understood from psychology and from Neil Blomkamp that the human mind cannot perceive something like themselves unless that creature is on two legs, has behaviours that can be understood through observation, and most importantly, has a face much like ours. According to David Meng of Better Workshop, the vast majority of aliens are work-class drones, and this explains their lack of direction or initiative. The film introduces the timeline of the pawns being stuck in Johannesburg for 20 years. And you would think that with more than a decade window, they would have done many things, but they didn't. And thus, with no direction, crime took place instead. What would you do with no purpose? and the world around you placing you in isolation through bureaucracy? And the bureaucracy in the film itself, called the Multinational United, MNU, is a multinational corporation that the state is essentially relying on. Within this, there is another underlying theme of the dangers of reliance of those corporations as a form of government-funded enforcement. MNU's accountability is made unclear, with their interests not necessarily being in line with democratic principles. We can see this the further we are in the film, to the point that in the end, the MNU is represented as a corporation which partners with governments to be a negative portrayal of the dangers of outsourcing militaries and bureaucracies to private contractors. It can even go so far as the time tags within the black and white surveillance footage that Blumkamp uses throughout to almost indicate that the MNU is the all-seeing, that they are representing Big Brother watching everything and everyone under their control, making it a very real thing when the interviewees reflect back on what happened to Vickers, using that footage to determine a timeline of events. But there is more to this film than the underlying themes that I've already talked about. Along the themes that were mentioned, I feel this film goes further. A quote from Richard Kearney from his book Strangers, Gods and Monsters explores this in more detail. This recurring as xenophobic drive relates to the basic unconscious process whereby we externalise what is strange within us into an external stranger. The result is a denial of the fact that we are strangers to ourselves, a denial which takes the form of negating aliens. To the extent that we exclude the outsider, we deceive ourselves into thinking that we have exempted ourselves from the estrangement. We fool ourselves into believing that we have purged that singular sense of anxiety, which Freud calls the uncanny. It's the unconscious understanding that there is a divide between people, or, in this case, people and aliens, because of the underlying decisions of doing so. People have chosen to see the difference between themselves and aliens and have placed them lower on the spectrum of importance. Hence, they are now labelled as something strange, something other, much like racism in this day and age. Why? Because of the way they act, talk, smell, or look? In this instance, in District 9 especially, it might be all of them. In this instance, the more foreign someone is, the more likely they are placed under the label of strange within our unconscious, and the uncanniness of it all. What does that mean? Freud coined the term the uncanny or unheimlich to explain the unconsciousness of labelling of something other from oneself, but in reality it is labelled that way because it is the unexplored parts of ourselves manifested. Another quote from the same book. The uncanny, concludes Freud, 
is in reality nothing new or alien, but something which is familiar and of old established in the mind, and which has become alienated from it only through the process of repression. The preflux un in unheimlich is, in short, to be understood less as a logical opposition than as a dialectical reversal. The adversary I love to hate is often nothing less than myself in disguise. Taking our cue from Freud, we might conclude, accordingly, that dreaded aliens are more dreaded not because they are other than us, but because they are more like us than our own selves. There is nothing really alien about the alien. This quote from the same author of the same book explains the uncanny as a theory when I feel that this is what is happening in practice with Vickers' transformation. His change from human to non-human is iconic in the special effects within the film's performance, as well as the main aspect of it being a lit literal metaphor. The metaphor being the irony of his change in circumstance through his experiences and personality. The more he transforms away from being biologically human, the more humane he becomes towards those treated unfairly. And once he begins to take down the barriers that his job and his way of life have placed over the aliens, he then begins to understand them from another point of view. And within this exposure, his transformation, he realises that people who were supposed to be on his side, with the naive view of MNU initially helping the aliens, begins to slide away towards the ugly truth. What I found fascinating was the logs of Vickers' hours of exposure, almost like chapters within his transformation. Before his exposure with the black liquid, Vickers, if you could see it from an outsider's perspective, had everything. The loving wife, the good job, and now his promotion to being the commanding officer in charge of the whole operation that we are introduced to at the beginning of the film. Sounds like a good life, right? Until we realise that Vickers, with his polite and demure personality, lets many things slide, and, with his last name, Van de Merwe, to represent the stereotypical figure humorously presented Boer prejudice and stupidity, the Boer being the descendants of Dutch people who went to live in South Africa. The Boer were arguably the only people represented by the National Party, despite being the minority of the population. This association with the apartheid has earned them the ongoing stereotype mentioned earlier, and thus, Vickers has already gotten a head start in being seen as a prejudice, and in some scenes quite stupid because of this link. There are other things also, like the domineering aggressive director, who happens to be his wife's father, most probably placed him in command to see if it goes wrong. He can scapegoat Vickers, his son-in-law, which we can see that he clearly despises. As well as with Smith, the father-in-law, that is the main antagonist, Kubaris Venter, a mercenary working under Smith, who shows no form of respect for Vickers, alone with him or with others. And so, after Vickers is exposed with the black liquid, on film I might add, he throws up. His nose begins to bleed black liquid. He feels dizzy and sweats incessantly. His fingernails begin to fall off, and he collapses at his own promotion party. Recall that at that party, his wife was worried about him, but his father-in-law was not. It is here, from his collapses, that the timestamp begins. It reads, Admission to Hospital, 10pm. Vickers is rushed to hospital, with his bloody bandaged arm exposing an alien arm instead. He is placed under anaesthetic as the hospital is told over the intercom to evacuate. MNU soldiers pile in, dump him in a body bag to the lab where Tanya is seeing this horrific act as they roll him by. 
Vickers demands answers the whole way, with no one responding to him. At the facility, there is recorded footage of experiments done on him, with them cleaning him at a distance for the hose. The time is sped up until the next time tag reveals, 16 hours after exposure. He's been in there a long time. This is essentially the phase in which Vickers is no longer seen as another human being with civil rights. He's now an experiment. This is further explored when Vickers is wheeled to another room where there are carcasses of the aliens with various people in hazard suits doing small experiments on them. Vickers is shocked, and he should be, to have a job in the same company that does that. As well as helping the aliens shows the contradiction of the whole scenario. His job was essentially to help with keeping the veil over everyone's eyes about Emma New's real reason, which is alien weaponry. As well as using Vickers' arm on alien weaponry, tasing him in the process if he does not do it straight away, Vickers is forced to kill an alien at the very end of it, sending him over the edge in shock about their lack of interest in life. They do an experiment which shows, through pain, how fused Vickers' DNA is with the alien fluid, and it gets worse. With Vickers almost fainting on a stretcher, the engineer and the director, with another member of the board, discuss what they have found. They discuss this in the same room, literally in earshot of Vickers, about harvesting his body for biochemical research. <sighs> Man. Explaining about the amount of money it will help towards their cause, and how they should do it now because of the, how the DNA is in perfect balance. And the crazy thing is, how power hungry these people in power are. The member of the board is the one that says yes to this. Vickers tries to plead to Smith, but with no avail. His response of, I will take care of this, gives no imagination to the decision he has already decided upon. He doesn't say yes, but he doesn't need to. He responds to the question of next of kin, which is obviously his daughter. And so, he lies about Vickers to his daughter, perhaps finally getting what he wanted. Vickers out of the picture. And from this moment on, he is seen as the villain. And the funny thing about the whole aspect of mistreating a fellow human being, he gets away with it too. So after successfully running away and hiding, Vickers is now seen as a massive asset, estimated over a billion dollars in money. Wow. To have a human being to cost any amount of money is a baffling thing to me. And the inventive lies they tell about him on the news to make everyone not be able to help him sets up the labelling of Vickers as something different from human to becoming a very real thing. The next time tag reads, 31 hours after exposure. He's essentially on the run and hides on the one place he knows they won't be looking for him, after realising hours beforehand that all of his bridges in his human life were essentially burnt. And it's funny how he cannot tell his side of the story at any moment. 40 hours after exposure. With only Tanya really being on his side, Vickers has to ask for help from the very aliens he was dealing with an eviction notice from earlier. Even they can see that the transformation is increasing, with behaviour setting in such as Vickers' fevered gobbling of cat food, which is seen as a thing the aliens go crazy over. It is within this time period that he finds collaboration, and how various aliens are comparing his alien exposure to their own, saying that they are the same. Vickers refuses this until the next exposure tag. 56 hours after exposure. This is the last tag into his final transformation, 
It is here that Vickers finds more of the transformation creeping over his body, to the point that he can peel his very skin off to reveal alien skin underneath. A symbolic metaphor, perhaps, but still. Vickers does not want this, and cries his heart out. This is out of his control, and the audience might feel sympathy for something he has no control over. Luckily, his handling of alien weaponry and the collaboration with his new alien friends sees him take a bigger step in his character development by essentially growing a pair of balls and standing up to the institution he was working for, eventually towards Fenter, his antagonist. His father-in-law? Not so much. But perhaps him getting away and having the evidence through the documentary style of filming Vickers through his journey could perhaps present his downfall. But it's not really about who has won in this fight. It's about a journey of self-discovery for Vickers, and how, after his transformation, he holds the hope for his marriage and of waiting for the aliens to come back and make him human again. It is the persistence of this hope, and the realisation that he's only the half the human at the beginning, shows that Vickers has learnt many things about himself through his journey of gaining some self-respect, and perhaps gaining a conscious understanding of the stranger in himself, as well as accepting the strangers around him as equal. If you enjoyed what was said, please follow me on Anchor and Spotify. Be kept in the loop for new episodes by following my Instagram. And if you have any questions, email me at twotakespodcast1 at gmail.com. And as always, thanks for listening.